Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. We do about 60 seminars a year, and this is our 28th year. And so uh, uh, I love what I do. I was an engineer for about 10 years, and uh, I love my job. And uh, I told my dad when Chris and I went in, I said, Dad, I think I'm, uh, I'm going to quit my job. And he was so crushed because I, I hated school when I was in school. I wanted to play football, baseball, wrestle, go fishing, swimming, you know, shoot a deer. Uh, it was my life. And, uh, but, you know, uh, when I got out of high school, you know, the Army was calling. So, you know, I got my notice in the mail and uh, went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that was a great experience. Everybody should have that at least once in their life because it'll take the stupid right out of you. And so I took the hair off my head, my clothes off my back, gave me a green uniform, and I crawled on my belly a lot, and I learned to say yes, sir, a lot, and, uh, but it was a good time. I came from a big family. My dad had 12 brothers and sisters, so did my father-in-law, and, and people would ask us all the time, said, are you Catholic? I said, no. Are you Mormon? No. What are you? I said, we're backslidden Baptist. I said, well, how come you have so many kids? We had them to put them to work. And I grew up in East Tennessee on a 400-acre farm in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I was actually born in a log cabin, a real one. I mean, dirt floor. And the real thing, I got a picture of it in my house is me sitting on the front porch when I was a newborn baby. And uh, so I grew up in country country with a K. And uh, we didn't have Walmart. We had a little country store. Uh, and uh, you could buy everything, buy kerosene or bread or cheese, whatever you need. Country store that had it. It was the first Walmart. And uh, it was an incredible experience. And so I grew up there, but then eventually I left, and uh, my dad moved to Tennessee in Chattanooga, a big town, got a job at a factory, and we moved to civilization where we had electricity, you know, and cars and stuff. And, uh, and I'm old enough to remember all that. And so I've seen a lot of things happen through the generations. Eventually, you know, I went back to school, became an engineer. I loved that job, and I quit, and I went back to, uh, went back to school for three years, became a minister, Got a job on the church staff, and uh, they said, you're in charge of the education. I said, what do I do? He said, well, you teach everybody. I said, well, teach them what? Whatever they need to know. And I said, no, I'm not making this up. Church of 3,000 people back in the late 70s, one of the first mega churches in the state of Oklahoma. We didn't know what we were doing. They were just showing up. And people said, how do you get people to come to church? We don't have a clue. We didn't invite them. We don't know where they're coming from. And I'm not making that up. And so we said, well, you got a bus minister? Yes, we do. We have Three buses at every Sunday morning service. Had three Sunday morning services. We have three buses. And so where do you get your kids from? We don't get them from anywhere. Uh, if, you have, if you're a child between the ages of 5 and 12, you're not allowed in the building. We don't have room for you. You've got to get on the bus. We've rented a shopping center a mile down the road. We bus the kids away from the church. So we had a bus ministry, but to bus kids away from the church, not to the church. And people think I'm making it up, and I'm not. It was the truth. We did that for about five years. And then the waves stopped coming, and, you know, we went from 3,000 people to 2,500, from 2,500 to 2,000, 2,000 to 1,500, 1,500 to 1,000. And we were sitting around staff, what's going on? I don't know. Where are they going? We don't know why they came. <laughs> we don't know why they're leaving. And we had to become a real church where we actually had to go out and witness to people. It was amazing. And actually share your faith, and talk to somebody, pray with somebody. Real Christians, you know. So anyhow, we stopped the flow, and it went back the other direction. So I came up through all that. In the middle of all that, I was teaching a class on parenting because uh, I came from a big family. Again, my dad my father-in-law had 12 kids each, and so I wanted a big family. I don't want to grow old by myself. I want to have somebody take me to dinner on Sunday. 
I want somebody to send me on a cruise and buy me a Winnebago. And, I, and I, people laugh all the time. I'm very serious. And I told my kids the day they were born, you owe me. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, you owe me. And so people said, I'd be glad when my kids leave home. I said, I want to chase them down. You owe me. And so parents left for the children, children left for the parents. I birthed you, bathed you, taught you how to talk and walk, got you to pass out, learn how to diagram a sentence. I got you to get out of school. I got you into college. I paid for that. I paid for your wedding, paid for your honeymoon, bought your car and fixed your cooking tea. You owe me. You owe me big time. And so I tell the kids, now, I'm very honest about this. I tell my kids, don't you buy anything for me for Christmas that fits in a box. I go to Walmart by myself. If you buy something for me, you either drive it up the driveway, it better be a cruise going somewhere. And I'm very serious. I've been on two cruises, and I got one truck out of the deal. I said, you owe me. I said, and so uh, I love you. The goal of having children was to raise them up. Children are on loan from God. We don't own them. God owns them. So children on loan from God, he gets them to us when they don't know anything. We spend 18 years or 24 years, whatever, training them up, getting them educated, and then we give them back to God. And so the goal was to get you to become an adult, and then you move away. And so I've always believed that because I grew up in a family that did that. And so uh, I remember my senior in high school, I got two months for graduation. My dad was a hard worker, and he's working at a big plant. Comes off for dinner, and uh, and I realized this is my senior year, and I'm going to get out here pretty soon. And so we're just talking. He just normal conversation at the dinner table. He said, well, son, uh, what do you plan to do when you get out of high school? And he's just very calm. I said, well, you know, me and my buddies, we're probably going to go to the lake all summer and hang out in the lake, you know, and do some skiing and fishing and hang out with the girls. He said, no, son, I mean, where, where are you going to live? I'm not making this up. And I, I said, what? Where are you going to live? Well, I'm going to live here in, in the bedroom I've got. Well, no, once you turn 18, you're an adult, and you have to get your own place. So where do you think about living? I don't know. He said, well, where are you going to work? I don't know. Well, you got a couple months to figure it out. And my family, I, I will love them forever. At 18, you leave home. If you don't have anything, you're leaving home with nothing. If you got no place to go, you're sitting in the woods on a tree stump somewhere. But we learned early, you got to grow up. you got to become an adult. And I thought, whoa. And so we've hit a couple of generations today where people have a lot too much time on their hands. They do. That's why you have a lot of protests going on or whatever. It's like, I always thought every time I saw a protest, you know, I like to protest, but i got to go to work. I'd love to protest, but i got to go pay some bills. <laughs> I love to protest. i got to unstop a toilet and fix a flat tire. i got stuff to do. And I'm very serious. And so when I started dropping babies like rain right out of heaven, because I wanted a big family. And so, uh, so each time we've got eight kids between the two of us. They're all adults. Thank God. They're all adults. They're all out of college. And they're out of the house. Got good jobs. They go to church on a regular basis. Now, they're not saints. There are no saints. Uh, there are no perfect people because there's no perfect parents. And uh, so kids have strengths. They have weaknesses. But they're going to be growing up for the rest of their life. You didn't produce a grown person. You just started the process. And so uh, we're very proud of our kids, but uh, uh, we let them know you're not supposed to come back home. You're, you're, you're supposed to stay gone. So with that in mind, I'm going to read something to you. This is Psalm 112. It's one of my favorite Psalms. This is the New Living Translation. I read just a little bit of this. Psalm 112, verse 1 says, How joyful are those who fear the Lord. Most important thing in your lives is make sure your kids fear God. 
So I, Psalm 34, 11, come to me, you children. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I pray that every morning. I'll pray it tonight. I don't think there's been a year in my life since I've had kids I've not prayed that prayer. The most important critical thing in your family's life is they need to fear God. Why? That is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. If you don't fear God, you'll never have wisdom. You'll never have knowledge. You're going to be broke and messed up the rest of your life. And you're going to blame some human for your life. It's no human's fault. Human's not my enemy. I got a name called the devil. You know, it's, that's another sermon. He says, how joyful those who fear the Lord, who delight in obeying his commandments. Well, you can't obey them if you don't know them. Their children, whose children? People who obey the Lord and delight in his commandments. Their children will be successful everywhere. An entire generation of godly people will be blessed. They themselves will be wealthy and their good deeds will last forever. Verse 7 said, they do not fear bad news. Who are these people that fear God? They don't fear bad news. They confidently trust the Lord to care for them. They are confident and fearless. They can face any foe triumphantly. So we're going through the pandemic thing, and people think, oh, man, it's the end of the world. Says, no, it's not. Uh, listen, I lived long enough, had such an old family. I, my dad was the youngest of 12 kids. Now, all my family's gone to heaven, all of them. My aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, uh, my parents, my in-laws. I had a wife go to heaven. A sister went to heaven. I'm the only McGee left. It's just me. There used to be tons of us. Huge family reunion. They're gone. And somebody asked us, how do you feel about that? I feel pretty stinking good. I'm still here. Because I remember when, when I was a kid, we had funerals at the house. We had a community of 750 people. We had an embalmer, but we did not have a funeral home. So somebody in your family died, they brought the body to the house. They come in the night before the funeral, and you move the couch out of the way, they'd slide that cask lid and lift the lid up, you know, and, and, and you sit up on that and eat chicken and baked beans and potato salad, and you cry over them and cuss at them and talk about them. By the time the sun came up, you're ready to stick them in the dirt. That's Barry. Dear Lord, I got no more emotion left. And it really helped the grieving process. So I remember as a kid, I had so many older aunts and uncles, and they started dying off. They lived in their 90s. They're starting to die off. And we'd go to the funeral. You know, my dad, we, okay, well, yeah, best dying. So we're there at the house, and we're sitting up all night. And for kids, we're just hanging out having fun. But eventually, my dad would give me, son, come over and tell you Aunt Bess bye. And so I'm seven years old. And I'd had one before, but I don't remember this. This is the one I remember. My Aunt Bess has died, and I go over to see her. Now, she's painted up like a $2 streetwalker. I grew up in the country. Their women don't wear makeup. They don't wear underwear. They're country women. They farm. They, they don't, there's no makeup even on Sunday. So they got her painted up like, like she's Bozo the Clown. And, and so my dad would make her pat and say, hello, bye. So I'd raise her and I'd tap my hand out. Well, she's harder than a two before. And I had a revelation. Age seven, I had a revelation from God that day. I thought, oh, man, that's where we're going. One day... If I live long enough, I'm going to be a two before in a box just like my aunt. And I had a revelation. I thought, I might want to get busy living. Because every day that goes by is another day you don't get back. And I had a brother. That guy said, I'm going to start doing something. I'm going to do everything I can do, everywhere I can do it. So I've done everything, hang gliding, mountain climbing. I've done stuff that Grace never should have done. Because we're going to, I'm here one time, let's do it all. I had so many old people sit on the porch every Sunday after church, and they'd sit there and rock, you know, because you had to sit with the elders, and I had a ton of them up in that little mountain town, and they'd rock, and you'd always hear this, you know, I could have done this. I should have done that. I ought to have done that. And it was always should have, could have, not have. I thought, well, here you old, you, you know, gray-haired, rocking in a chair at 95. Why did you do it? 
You always talk, what I should have done, what I could have done. I thought, uh uh uh, that's not happening to me. I'm going to do it all, see it all. I am doing it, you know. And so people say, how'd you get so blessed? And, and I am a blessed man, I am. But I think the blessed people are because they're looking for something, they don't settle. And the devil's always trying to make you settle and pull back and pull in and don't take any chances. That's not the people of God. God's going to constantly ask you to step out in faith and do something. And so people ask, well, what do you think about the pandemic? I said, well, it's nothing new. There's been about seven or eight of these since 1929. You know, from the, my parents, my grandparents talk about the great crash of 29. People jumping off the roofs of buildings. Well, at the same time people were committing suicide, some group of people were becoming billionaires. There were always two groups. There's a group pulling back and a group pushing in. Now, I remember in the 70s with our oil embargo, and we're trying to get gasoline. And gasoline back then was like 27 cents a gallon. It was cheap. But it was a mile long to get into the little KO gas station in my little town, because, and they would only sell you 10 a 10-gallon of gas. That's the most you can get. Well, there'd be fist fights. People are out of gas. It's the 70s. We're fist fighting over a tank of gasoline. And then the 80s, when the oil embargo hit again, and then the stock market crashed in the 80s. Like, what is, I said, there's nothing new. Jesus said when he comes back to earth, he said this. Jesus, you know, the son of God, he's got a book he wrote. He said, when I come back to the earth, people will be eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, buying, selling, building, and planting. Jesus said, it will be business as usual until the day I get back. So whatever pandemic it is, it's going to pass. So put your mask on, smile real big. They can't see it anyhow. Be a blessing to somebody, and let's just get through this. It's going to pass, guys. It's nothing new. This is not the end of the world. You'll know the end of the world. There'll be a trumpet. And so, now if you don't hear the trumpet, that's not good. That's a whole other sermon. That's another sermon. You want to make sure you hear the trumpet. And so... Uh, when God called us in the ministry, I had a great job. I loved my job. An engineer, my dad was so proud because I, I hated school. I made horrible grades, and you know, and uh, I went to the University of Tennessee my freshman year, and they wrote me a letter at the end of my freshman year saying I can't come back. I've still got it. I'm not allowed to go back to the University of Tennessee because I was a doofus. I don't care about school. I want to go hunting, fishing, suck lips off somebody's face. I got a five-year plan, and this isn't part of it. Well, they wrote me a letter saying I could never come back, so uh, I got my draft notice, and uh, Uncle Sam's calling, and so I get back in the military, and I get a job at a factory like all my family did. And, and I'm sitting at the factory one day. Now, they hadn't hired in a while because of the big blowout in the late 70s. So they're starting to hire back, and I'm sitting at this big plant making this aluminum cable. It's noisy. OSHA hadn't showed up yet. Everybody's deaf. So the guy's sitting along this big old strander machine, this old blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting on a stool, and I got my two machines I'm taking care of. And I look to the right, and I look to the left. And everybody in that plant was at least 20 years older than me. I'm young compared to everybody else. And they're old, and they haven't shaved, and got cigarette hand in the mouth. And I thought one, I thought, oh, my goodness, that's going to be me in 20 years. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And I thought, well, where am I going to go? I'm like, I get this job. I barely got this job. They hired me as a janitor and I worked my way up the food chain. And I thought, man, I got to start doing something. So I spent seven years in night school paying for what my dad would have paid for for free because I was a doofus. But being a doofus teaches you a lot of wonderful things. And so people say, how'd you become an engineer? I was a doofus. And I went back to school. And so I flunked uh, Trigonometry in high school. But I retook it at age 28. And I made an A at age 28. And I drove that teacher nuts. 
I'm sorry, I don't understand. Sine, cosine, and tangerine. Please repeat that to me again. And I drove, but I made an A because I want it now. You got to want something. God said, I give you the desires of your heart, but what do you want? You got to want something. And so I used to mess with my kids from the time they showed up, you know. I'd always ask them, where are you going to be five years from now? What are you going to be doing? Uh, what do you plan to be, you know, what are going to do for sports or music? What are you going to do in school? I never let my kids take study hall, never. Uh, my kids went to a private school. I was able to afford that because I was making good money. And so I said, listen, you take no study hall. I'm paying for this. You're going to take a class of some kind. Well, Dad, I've taken everything. Then invent something. Volunteer. Help the coach. Help the, help the lady with the yearbook. Yearbook comes out late every year. Help the lady with the yearbook. Do something. You're not going to sit in the classroom for 50 minutes and do nothing. I'm not paying for that. And so I always pushed them. And then I would test them every year. Every Christmas, I'd give them a test. I would get the unemployment test. Now, eventually, I gave them three tests. The unemployment test, uh, there's an academic skills test you can get uh, for people trying to get into college. And there's a, another test in Fort Worth that they make you take. So I had three different tests I'd give them every Christmas. What I'm trying to do is let them know there's something you're good at. Because a kid hears from day one they're stupid. Uh, kindergarten had not been invented yet when I went in the first grade. At least not in my part of the state. So I went in the first grade. I'm in an old public school. Floors are oil with so much oil. If somebody ever struck a match, that place would have burned down in 60 seconds. We have no screens on middle ancient windows, big old windows that went up. I'm sitting there, and so we didn't have desks. We have eight-foot tables. We're country with a K. And we'd have milk breaks. So you'd take three cents to have a carton of milk. So I took six pennies every day for my two cartons of cold milk. And we'd sit there during milk break, and we'd suck that straws. And one day we were sitting there, and there was, we had a homeroom mother that would volunteer all the way through fifth grade. Her kids in our class, and you know, and and, uh, and so she bent over him during milk break because you can't talk, public, you can't talk. We're just talking a second on the milk, looking at each other. Me and Mike Blake, you're hunting across from me. And mom bent over this little kid down the table here, kissed him on top of his head, and she said, "You're the most handsome boy in this class." And when she said, that, we went, "She lied," because <laughs> this kid was uglier than a mud fence. I mean, he couldn't help it. He just came out that way. Now, listen, I'm not handsome. We don't even have a TV. I have not been ruined by the media. I have a burr haircut. I had a burr haircut the last fifth grade. Sit down here. I didn't, have, I didn't comb nothing. There was nothing to comb. All my cousins were girls, so I had a girl's shirt on. It's got pink owls on it, buttons backwards. I'm not trying to prove nothing. I'm just, I'm just trying to survive what we're doing. And so I'm in the third reading group. They have two ahead of me. I'm in reading group number three. I... I learned about school, but we didn't know when she said, you know, said, she lied. We know mama's lied. He's ugly. He can't help it. He just came out that way. And she did that all the way through school. Now in high school, in high school, he dated the best looking girls in my high school. He had a date every weekend. We couldn't buy a date. But reason was because he was bold. He'd been told by his mom, so I'm like, I'm handsome. He said, Hey, you want to go out Friday night? Take her to dinner. Sure, I'll go out. You know, and so. We'd ask somebody on a date, said, hey, I don't know, you're probably busy. I mean, you usually are, and I don't know if you want to go out. I, you might can't, but if you could, I think I could probably borrow dad's car some if you'd like to. I know you probably can't. Who's going to go out with a wimp like that? I think I don't even date anybody. And we would sit at the football, we, football practice. We'd out on the field getting ready to start that, on the evening after school, and he would play football, but he wasn't out yet. And we would talk among ourselves, what is with women? Do they feel sorry for him? Is that why they date him? We can't buy a date. He's got a date every weekend. That's because he's bold. He believes he's handsome. 
Now, I just went to my 50th high school reunion, never missed one. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. I went to my 50th. And some of us are still alive, you know. Now, they're starting to do it every year now because people start to die off, so we're doing it every year, not every fifth year. And he's there. And he, he married a beautiful gal that went to our high school. Had three gorgeous kids. Thank goodness they took after their mother. And, uh, and he still thinks he's handsome. And we would still laugh about it. We're, we're, we're in our season. We still, he still, why? His mama told him he was handsome. He believes it. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You got to watch what you feed on. Because the world's come up with this, the media stuff. And there's nothing good in it. All the news is bad news. Stay tuned. Some bad news just happened. We'll be back after this commercial with some more bad news. And people stay glued to it. And I know when I was on church staff, people come in for coffee in the morning. Hey, did you see the news this morning? Hey, did you hear the news? No, no, I got up, kissed my wife, ate breakfast, talked to my kids, had my Bible reading for about 10 minutes, and I came to church, and I didn't watch the news. I don't want to feed on stupid. You know, stupid is as stupid does. They made a movie about that. And I realized people are feeding on the wrong thing. The Bible said, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it of the issues of life. You got to watch what you feed on, what you think about, what you read, what you listen to. Why? Because that's going to be part of who you are. Well, God's got us here in this planet. And, uh, you know, you read this Bible's great story. You go back to the beginning, you know, in Genesis, God makes Adam. Everything's good. And, you know, and, and it's beautiful. And uh, all of a sudden, he looks at Adam and said, hmm, it's not good. And I said, what's not good? You, not good. And I said, what's not good? He said, you're alone. Here, lay down and take a nap. I'm going to fix that. Adam laid down, took a nap. God took a rib, and he built a woman. That's why God made man, but he built a woman. That's why we say women are built. It's Hebrew. <laughs> it's Hebrew. It's in the Bible. So, so when God, God made man, he said, you need help. When he made a woman, he made something better. Women have a 3% higher IQ. They have a better immune system. The average woman outlives the average man by seven years. She has four, four times the vocabulary. She can outthink, outwork. When God made a woman, he, he outdid himself. He did that because he loved his man. He said, man, you need help, and I'm going to make something really good. It, it's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve. He didn't make another man. I already got one dude, so I don't need another. Let's going to make a woman. And so marriage is the greatest thing on this planet outside salvation. But I know some of the marriage something I've done for all this almost 35 years uh, the divorce rate is high as the marriage rate. Well, I married the wrong person. I married too late. I married too early. I married on the rebound. No, you married you. Like kind draws like kind. You married you. I've counseled so many people, and I only deal with Christians. I said, no, you married you. You need to adjust. Well, I don't like nothing about them. Well, you married your opposite. Opposites attract. People come in, they want to be the married. Bill Joe, we're so in love. No, you're blind as a bat and dumb as dirt. You're not in love. <laughs> Love's the most expensive four-letter word in the universe. You tell somebody I love you, get out your checkbook, your 401k, your hunting dog, your basketball, your rod and reel, your pickup, pile that on the table, then say, hey, sugar, I love you. Because if love's not costing you something, it's not love. The Bible says, for God so loved the world, he gave the only son he had. It cost God everything to love us. So you can't just throw that word around. I'm in love. No, you're not. You have no clue what it is. Love's a wonderful thing. And so what we did, we started this years ago because we were dropping babies, and I wanted a big family. I did, and I wanted a bunch. And uh, so we got six kids, and people judge us all the time, you know, say crazy jokes, and they weren't nice. 
And so that asked, you Catholic, you Mormon? I said, no, I'm a bachelor in Baptist. I know what I'm doing. And so uh, I wanted a big family. And so they asked us to teach a, a parenting seminar on Sunday evening. Now, nobody comes to church Sunday evening, very few. We have three Sunday morning services. We have a service at 6 o'clock. At 5 o'clock, if you really want to be there, there's a parenting class taught by Joe McGee. He knows something about kids. I said, I don't know about them. I know how to have them. I don't know what to do when they show up. That's another book. I've not read that book yet. And so, so he started teaching. And so this parenting book came out of eight and a half years of teaching parenting. And most of the time, people would ask me something. Hey, can I ask you a question? And they asked something. I remember the first day of parenting class. And so I taught maybe 10 minutes, read a few scriptures. The rest was just questions. Anybody have any questions? And they asked a question. I said, I don't know. Anybody know the answer to that? And a lady raised her hands. What's, what's the answer to that? And she said something. I said, no, I don't think that's right. Anybody else have an answer? And so we go to, we had a good answer. And I said, anybody else have any questions? That asked another question. I said, I don't know the answer to that. And I said, anybody else have an answer? And so the first year of parenting, it was just us sharing with one another. As iron strikes iron. And some of it was good. Some of it was just really stupid. But we learned. We learned that we are people that need God. We need God's word. And so you learn the parenting thing. It's like, Man, we need to we need to do this deep. So uh, I went. We covered 384 subjects in eight and a half years. Everything from bedwetting to how do you get your kids in the school, how do you fix their crooked teeth, what if you have a blended family, you name it, we covered it. And we realized there's something about everything in the Bible. God covered it all. There there are no surprises. And so we went through that. And then people started asking about tough stuff. I got asked one day. Said we know you have a lot of books on family and marriage. Said yeah, I teach on family and marriage. What I do. We don't have anything on men. You know, I teach on men all the time. We don't have a book. Well, there's just not that much to say about it. And I said, you know, because God keeps things short. Uh, spirit, soul, and body, world, flesh, and devil, uh, lover, leader, provider. God always makes things simple. They asked Jesus one time in Matthew 22. They're trying to trick him. Pharisees, Sadducees, they're mad because Jesus' crowds are growing, church crowds are dropping, and they're mad. And so they're trying to look and make him look stupid. Well, he's already messed with one bunch, and they left. The second bunch says, I'll ask him this. So, well, Master, you seem to know everything. What's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Because it's loaded with 690 commands. What's the greatest command in the Bible? He said, well, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And there's another commandment just as important. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. And they're just sitting there speechless. And then Jesus said, matter of fact, the entire law, all 17 books of law, are tied up in these two statements. If you keep these two commandments right here, you will fulfill the entire law. If you just learn to love God and love your fellow man, you're going to be fine. God's always trying to simplify complicated things. It keeps it real simple. So when I was doing the man thing, and somebody asked, well, what do you know about men? I said, well, men are responsible for three things. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. My job is to love my wife. Not when I feel like it. Not when she's happy in a good mood. I'm love her when I don't feel like it and she's in a bad mood. I'm going to love you all the time. I'm going to make you want to suck the lips off my face, sugar. That is my goal. And so love's what you do for somebody. And I want you to get back. I'm going to love my wife. So this piece is five. You've got to read. It's a great, great chapter. I'm going to love my wife. Secondly, I'm going to lead my family. First Corinthians 11, 3. As God is the head of Christ, Christ over the man, man's over the woman, woman's over the children, children's over the dog, dog's over the cat, cat's over the mouse, mouse over the cheese. There's a pecking order in the kingdom of God. But the word head's not boss or dictator. It's source. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my father. My father and I are one. Jesus turns around to man and says, man, without me, you can't do a thing. But with me, all things are possible. A man's turning around to his wife and says, sugar, what do you need? I'm either going to write a check for it or start believing God for it. I'm not your boss. I'm not your dictator. Any man that's got any hair on his lip at all knows. Who's the head of your house? My wife. Who, who picked out the furniture? My wife. 
Who picked out your bed? My wife. Who picked out the car? My wife. She picks out everything. All I want to know is where my cup of coffee is. That's all I'm looking for. I'm here to serve. Because a marriage is a funeral. It's a covenant. And you can't have a covenant unless somebody dies. So I typically all the time, Hallmark's got their cards all wrong. It's just, I'm so, I'm so sorry I heard you got married. Because if you don't die at that ceremony, you're a half-dead zombie. Nice take my seniors to divorce court every year for half a day. They say, where are we going? Well, we're going to divorce court today. Why? Well, all of you think you're in love, and I want to show where love's going. So go to divorce. Now, divorce court in Tulsa County, there's a balcony you can sit in. You can't, you're not allowed to talk. Now, I tell them before we go. Now, guys, these are all seniors. Now, guys, what you're going to see today are two people who at one time swore before God and witnesses, I love you forever. I love you. That's who you're going to hear today. And today you're going to hear every nasty four-letter word you've ever heard and some new ones spoke between two people at one time swore before God and witnessed they loved one another. They didn't know what love was. I tell somebody, you say I love you, get out everything you own and put it on the table because love's going to cost you. But it's the most wonderful thing in the planet. There's nothing better. Only thing better than a marriage is salvation. Only thing better than marriage is salvation. Now, you don't have that on the news today. You're going to tell the divorce rate and how many things are going south and whatever. Well, you just never know. I know. God said so. Certain things in the Bible. With long life, I'm going to satisfy you and show you my salvation. People used to ask me, hey, are all your family dead? Every one of them. What do you think about that? Not much. I don't think about it at all. What are you going to do? I plan to be here when the trumpet sounds. I've said that since I was seven when I touched that dead body in that casket. How long are you going to live? I'll be the last one off the planet. And when I get to the marriage of the Lamb, I'm going to tell Jesus, Lord, I locked up. Here's the keys. I was the last one off the planet. Now, I'm not going home early. And I've had family members. Well, I just think I'll go to heaven. Well, go on. Get yourself out of here. <laughs> I'm not going. I'm, I'm not going at all. I'm going to hear the trumpet. They're going to blow the trumpet twice. <laughs> I'm going with dirt under my fingernails. I'm going to stay as long as I can because as long as I'm here, I'm laying up treasure in heaven. Here's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to get the biggest stinking mansion in heaven. I don't want no log cabin on the back side of the back 40. I want something. It pleases God when I do that. God is thrilled. Jesus was looking for somebody to show himself strong, and God wasn't looking for strong people. He wants somebody to be humble enough to let him use him. That's why he picked David. He says, send to the house of Jesse. What's he looking? Well, Saul's gone stupid. We need another king. He's at the house of Jesse. So he gets there and knocks on the door. <laughs> Jesse, can I help you? I'm the prophet of God. I'm here to anoint your son king of Israel. Which one? I got, a lot, I got a lot of sons. And he said, I don't know. He didn't mention that. And so he lines up seven boys, oldest to the youngest. And he, he realized, if I don't get this right, I get stoned to death at sundown because they don't have any TV or, or movies to go to. That, that's the only entertainment they have was stoning false prophets. And so he's looking, which one is it? He said, I, I, I got to do something. He goes to the oldest kid. He, he says, the Bible says, that's a photogenic face. It's probably the king. He looks like a king. He starts to pull the oil over his head, anoint him as king, and God said, that's not him. Oh, that was close, God. Probably the second born. They're always more aggressive than the first born. They've got an advantage. He starts to pull the oil, and God said, that's not him. So he gets seven no's in a row, and he thinks, man, did I miss this? And he asked him, said, hey, hey, Jess, you got any more boys? Yeah, we got one more outside. We don't let them in the house. Smells like sheep. Well, you mind going and getting them? And so the Bible says the ruddy-complected runt, the ruddy-complected runt of the family comes in. And so, and the prophet looks at him, and he says, and you live in translation, God, you've got to be kidding. No, you're just on the outside. I see his heart. He's my next king. Soak him. And so the Samuel pours it all over his head. Kids, old, you know, kinky-headed kid, spitting on him, said, you're our next king. God help us. 
And he was. Now, he was anointed to be king, but he's not trained yet. God said, he's got the heart, but i got to train him. Uh, next week, he's going to have to kill a lion. The week after that, he's going to kill a bear. The week after that, he's going to kill a 10-foot, 2-inch, 6-finger giant. After that, he's going to whip a nation. I'm training him to be king. He's anointed, but he's not ready. He's anointed. But as a parent, all of our kids are called and anointed to do something. It's our job to train them up. You don't stop being a parent when your kid turns 18. Now, legally, you're through. Legally, the government sees that kid as an adult now. I said, you're an adult now. You know, like my dad told me. But I'll be your parent when I'm 90 and you're 70. Because kids, I expect my kids to call me someday when I'm 90. Hey, Dad, what you doing? Oh, I ain't out over here. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah, what is it? Did you ever go this to your 70? Sure did. What did you do? I did this. I'll still be passing on wisdom to my kids. Now, I'm not their daddy. I'm just their brother in the Lord now. I said, you can learn to, you can learn to pull from God on your own. And so we went through this thing. It's like, I'm a lover. I'm a leader. And then 1 Timothy 5, 8, I'm a provider. And I've told all my son-in-laws that marry my daughters, your job's to take care of my daughter financially. You got to pay for her. Now, I'm going to pay for the wedding, pay for your honeymoon. I'm going to bless you real good. But after that, you're paying for everything. And I don't want to look at my daughter 20 years now. It looks like she's been dragged down the interstate behind a bumper of a car, wore out trying to support your sorry self. So I made all my son laws bring the budget that they were planning to what they had, the five-year plan. Where are you going to be in five years? Because that's my daughter. I'll take good care of my daughters. What are you going to do with them? I better not hear any negative. Now, you're not perfect people. You're going to disagree. You're probably going to fight. You've got to learn how to repent quick and forgive quick. Repent quick and forgive quick. And those are the two greatest things a Christian can ever learn. You know, Revelation 2, God's talking to the church at Ephesus. Of all the seven churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation, he bragged on Ephesus the most. This is my favorite. Man, they've sacrificed, they've given, they've done all these great things. He's bragging on them, but then he said, but I have this one thing against you. Now, they're listening. God has bragged on them more than anybody. We are the special whatever. But then he says, I have this one thing against you. And they said, well, he thought you loved us. Well, I do love you. But I have this one thing against you. Well, did we do something wrong? He said, yes. They said, what? You've left your first love. When we first got together, when you first got born again, we hung out all the time. You'd talk to me, pray to me, sing to me, worship. I'm not seeing you in several months. Where you at? Because life just got good, and then they figured they don't need God anymore. He said, you need to do three things. You need to remember from which you fell. You need to think back. What was it like when I was close to God, when I was walking with him, when I prayed about everything? You need to repent that you fell away. Lord, forgive me. Then number three, you need to redo what you did in the beginning. So when I do marriage counseling, I let every couple come in. I said, I give you 30 minutes. I can only see you for 30 minutes in, in Oklahoma. And so I give you the first 15 minutes to tell me what the problem is. Well, he said, she said, she said, he said, blah, 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 blah. And it'll build in 50, 50 minutes. I can have them in five. Now, these are only Christians. I only live with Christians. So, okay, your time's up. My 15 minutes. And I go to one scripture, go to Revelation. I don't go to any other scripture in my counseling. Never. You need to remember what it's like. Why don't you get married? What? Why don't you get married? Well, we fell in love. What do you mean you fell in love? What happened? You weren't born next to each other. Well, we met at church and we went for coffee. And we went for lunch and dinner, and then we started dating and started kissing and hugging. And we got married. Oh, that's good. What happened? We have fallen out of love. What? We have fallen out of love. I said, let me explain something to you. You, you can't fall out of love. You can fall off the couch. You can fall out of bed. You can fall out of your truck. You can fall off in the ditch. You can't fall out of love. Love's a choice. 
love's a choice. You made a choice. And so you, you got the easy days of love and the hard days of love. Love's what you do for somebody, not what you feel about them. For God so loved the world, he did something. What are you willing to do for your spouse when it's not easy, when it's hard? I'm going to love them. And sometimes you just got to do it out of almost anger. I love you. I love you. I love you more. I guarantee to you, I do. Shut up. I love you. Shut up. I love you more. And I've been in those. I've been, and and so you got to realize, and pretty soon you'll just giggle. This is stupid. Let's just quit acting dumb and start loving one another. And so love's the most expensive four letter word in the universe, but it's the greatest word. And what you got to do, you just got to hunker down. I've had so many family members because divorce was non existent in my family. And all of a sudden, I got, I got one aunt that was she's on her seventh spouse. And uh, I married the first, and I didn't marry the others. I went to the wedding, bought presents, threw rice, and ate some cake. Said, you're not going to marry me again? Said, no, ma'am, you don't need to get married. No, ma'am, you're not ready. Well, I just keep finding the wrong man. No, you keep marrying you. You'll keep marrying you. You'll get rid of him, and you'll marry another you. Like kind draws like kind. You need to grow up, not get remarried. And once you start growing up, you'll find somebody else that's growing up, and it'll go really, really good. <laughs> It didn't go over good. Anyhow, but I did go. So uh, it's a real short sermon. Um, everything I've ever taught in 35 years was this. We finally got it in book form. This comes out in two weeks. I don't have this on my table, but it's the best thing I ever wrote in my life. It was the four kinds of kids. Because I realized there's four kinds of people. I don't care, business, school, elementary, college, high school. Your whole life, you've met four kinds of people. And it's in Proverbs chapter 1. There's four kinds of people in the Bible. There are wise people, there are simple-minded people, there are foolish people, and there are scornful people. And I got all the scriptures in this book. It's just loaded. Wise people live a long time. Why? Because they fear God. The fear of the Lord, Psalm 34, 11, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Until you fear God, wisdom will not exist. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Until you get fear of God, you won't have any knowledge. You'll be broke and messed up and have very few friends. Why? You're a doofus to be around. You only think about I, me, me, and I. You don't think about other people. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get yourself some. James talks about, said, wisdom is the principal thing. If you lack wisdom, ask God, and he'll give it liberally, and upbraideth not. If you walk with wise men, you'll be made wise. How do you get wisdom? Hang around other wise people. Don't hang around doofuses. Wise people can scale the wall of a big city and take a cap. Wise people have long life. Wise people are wealthy. And so we, we've got almost 70 scriptures in this little mini book, what the Bible says about wise people. It's all good. There's not one negative scripture that happens to a wise person. What if you're not wise? You're simple-minded. You're evil? No. You feel the devil? No. You just, you're a doofus. You're a good doofus. I've had kids in school. I had this one kid came to me, I don't know how many times, fifth grade, fifth grade. Third week in a row, he'd come crying every time. I don't know why I can't do what's right, Mr. I keep messing up. Sons, because you have no wisdom. You're a doofus. And you can't keep coming down here because the first time a kid would come to my office, I did the same thing every time. Number one, I had a picture of me in the first grade, Hickson Elementary. There's 32 kids first grade. Miss Morgan's my teacher. All the boys have bird haircuts. All the girls had dresses. When an old, ancient, should have burned down public school. So I hunted a $5 bill, take that picture. The kids come to my office. They come in and say, what's that? If you can pick me out of that picture, I'll give you that $5 bill. Now, teachers will send them down to, become, to get swapped because we can still swap in Oklahoma. It's still legal in my state. Switch, swap, paddle, and spank. Parents have to sign permission slip. So, so I had two paddles in my office based on your size. The first time you come to my office, 
They're always crying, messed up, or sometimes they're arrogant. I said, what are you doing here? Well, teacher sent me down here to get swatter expelled. I said, what'd you do? And they'll tell me something. I said, well, come on back here in the kitchen. And so what? Come in the kitchen. So in the kitchen, I, I ordered donuts every morning. My, my staff loved donuts. I had a big old staff. And so me, I love chocolate donuts. There's only one donut's chocolate. If it's not chocolate, it's not a donut. It's something fake. And so I take it back and get you two chocolate donuts and get you a Pepsi out of the refrigerator come back to my office. So we sit in my office. Now, they've sent them down here for me to swat them. And I did this for 10 years. What are you going to do? Have a donut. Drink your Pepsi. See if you can pick me out of that picture. I'll let you win $5. Uh, and I start talking to my son, the reason you're down here is because you have no wisdom. That's why you're sitting here. You're simple-minded. Uh, I just figure you don't know any better. Somebody had to explain to you about the rules in this school and in your classroom. So I'm sure the teacher says, I'm going I'm to give you the second set of rules. Here they are. They're on the wall down there in your classroom because I'm the principal. I know what's down there. I need you to do this and not do this. Are we good? And we'll eat the donuts. We'll tell some jokes. We'll guess the $5 bill. I'll hug his neck, send him back to class. And on the way out there, I said, now listen, son, the second time you come down here, if you come again, there'll be no donuts and no Pepsi. You don't get to guess the $5 bill, and I'm going to lift you off the floor because I'm going to bust the hound out of you. It's legal. <laughs> and some would. Some would show back up, and they'd like, I'm back. Well, bless your heart. No donut today. <laughs> and it's like... And then I have something to be so tough. I didn't feel it. But then you're from planet Mars, because I guarantee if you're from this planet, you felt that. You can just be tough all you want. And so I'll swatch every time. But I realize if you stay simple-minded too long, you become a fool, Proverbs says. It's sport for a fool to make mischief. Uh, fools think they got an edge. Teachers love fools. They have so much potential. But a fool gets everybody else around him caught and in trouble. And it's like he's just... He, the Bible says a fool's like a dog that pukes his guts out and eats it again. A fool will never prosper. He'll never get promoted. If he does, he can't keep the job. He can't keep the raise. He keeps getting laid off, getting fired. What's going on? You're a fool. The Bible talks about you. And if you stay a fool too long, you go to stage four. You become a scorner. The Bible says scorners hate those that love them. Scorners hate their parents, hate their coach, hate their teacher. They hate authority. They hate everybody. Everybody's a doofus except them. And the Bible says, cast out a scorner, strife contention will cease. If you look at any gang leader that's ever been arrested or maybe not even been caught, uh, they get everybody around them in trouble. They don't get caught themselves, usually. They have the ability to get doofuses caught, but they don't get caught because they're crafty. They're a scorner. The Bible says, cast out a scorner, strife contention will cease. So as long as you cut them off as one-on-one, I'll deal with you, I'll bust you, I'll make you scrub the gym floor with the toothbrush. I did that twice in 10 years. Hey, you got three days to clean that gym floor, here's your toothbrush, get after it. And it was legal, I can do that. But the day you come to my office, you got somebody else you got in trouble with you, that's the day I expel you. Because if you're getting other people in trouble, I can't let you stay here, I gotta kick you out. And so I, I expelled seven kids in 10 years. Every kid I expelled, their parent either hugged my neck or shook my hand. Because they knew I'd gone the second and third mile, I'd try to do as much as I'm trying to get you to stay here. But if you choose, I'm gonna have to let you go. And so whenever I expel the kid, I said, you got one year to get your life together, and if you get your life together, a year from now, you can come back. I only had two that made it back. I only had two. One that did not make it back. Man, he was a dude. He was selling dope during chapel and gigging all the time, stealing stuff, cheating on tests. So if I got him in one day, I said, son, you're out of here. I, I haven't, that's it. You're getting others in trouble with you. And you're going, well, his parents had money, and they sent him to a, a military school in Florida. Nasty place. It's not on anything you want to go to. Nasty place. So he's down there in this military school. 
Well, evidently, it got him in shape, mentally, physically, every other way. And finally, he gave his heart to Jesus, and I hadn't seen him in 15 years. So when I published my first book on parenting, my publishing company told us I was supposed to go down and meet the guy, the, you know, vice president of the company. I go down, and I, I've got his name, but I don't recognize it. So I walk in, and it's a nice building, big old place, and there's a guy in a suit and tie. When I walk in, he sees me. I don't know who I'm looking for. I've just got a name. So I'm looking for he's Todd. His name's Todd. And so this guy stares at me, suit and tie, look well-dressed. And all of a sudden, he just stared at me, and he said, Joe McGee? I said, yes, who are you? He said, I'm Todd. I'm the guy you're supposed to see. I said, well, nice to meet you, Todd. I said, you don't recognize me, do you? I said, no. And so he puts his arm around me, and he calls everybody in the office over. Hey, everybody come here. I want you to meet Joe McGee. The last time I saw Joe McGee, he had me bent over his desk, and he was busting me three times before he got me sent off to boarding school. He said, that was the greatest day of my life. Some finally, somebody finally loved me enough to confront me, not just tolerate it and tolerate it and tolerate it. Love's a tough word. It's like, how much love? I've told the story before. My dad, <laughs> my dad, you know, told me two months before I graduated high school. He said, well, what are you going to do when you get out of school? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to the lake. He said, no, no, where are you going to live? I said, well, I'm living here. No, no, you're an adult now. you got to live on your own. So where, where are you going to work? And I said, my dad made me grow up. And it was the greatest thing my dad ever did for me. So with my kids, I always loved my kids. Every holiday at my house, when my kids were there and even if they were in college, uh, Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, Christmas, New Year's, spring break, every kid came to my house because the ones who are still living there uh, and the ones that weren't, they were in college, they'd come back and I'd feed them. We'd have a great weekend. I'd feed you real good. But I worked them like a dog. You're coming to my house. We're going to do family time. That means we're going to work. And so I built a, two big cracker pair porches off my big old barn house. I poured a, a basketball court one summer. I built a swim pool another summer. I poured a concrete sidewalk all around the thing. Uh, we cut down trees. They come to my house and they're going to work. And I got five of my kids are daughters. They're, they're girls. But they know, what do you do at the house? Well, we work, poured a lot of concrete, had a lot of fun, ate a lot of, ate a lot of steak and burgers and chili dogs. and We built a memory. And so to this day, my kids think that was the greatest time of their life. What'd you do? We worked. We hung out, laughed with one another, sweat a lot, you know. And, but we did stuff. We did stuff together. We didn't just sit at the table and stare at one Well, how you doing? How you doing? Well, good to see you. Got to go. Got to go. No. You, you build memories by doing stuff together. I'll give you this last thing. I built two fire pits in my yard, big old fire pits. Now, I live out in the country, got two and a half acres. We don't own a lawnmower. There's no grass to mow. It's just rocky ravines. I put two fire, and my wife told me one day, what are you doing building a fire pit? Why? My dad did this. It's real good. And so I kept logs piled up all the time. There's so much lumber out there and wood. We cut trees all the time. Old black oaks, not good for anything. It's burning. I go out, and my wife said, where are you going? I'm going to build a fire. She knew something was up. So right outside my porch, in the yard, big old fire pit, and I just started a fire. And these kids come and say, Dad, what are you doing? Oh, it's building a fire. Well, for? Oh, I just like to build a fire. I love a fire, you know. And, uh, well, you going to cook anything? No. You can get some marshmallows if you want to, come out. And so what I'm trying to do is um, kids will come out, and we might be grilling some marshmallows or a hot dog. And eventually I say, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? I say, sure. And usually they'd say something that would shock me, something that happened at school, something that happened on a date. And I, and I just sit there real quiet. Now, you, this is not easy. I'm sitting, I want to just slap that. I want to slap their nose around next year. And I said, I said, well, what do you think about that? Well, Dad, I don't think it's pretty dumb. I don't think that, you know, I shouldn't have been involved in that. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. 
What do you think you ought to do now? Do you know something, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus always answered a question with a question? That's God speaking. God always answered your question with a question. And I learned something as a parent. Just ask your kids, what do you think you ought to do now? I've had kids, you know, you know, quit school one day and just take a big truck ride down on the river. And uh, I said, listen, I don't follow you around. I don't check your emails. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. If you go stupid, God loves you enough, you're going to get caught. And somebody will call me. Some of you don't even know. Hey, Joe, I saw your kid down on the river. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And so I didn't, I'm not even coming down the river. I got stuff to do. But when you get home, somewhere over the supper table, hey, how was it down the river today? <laughs> be sure God loves you enough, you'll be the first one to get caught. I'll tell you, you can drive down the interstate five miles over the speed limit, and they're going to stop and give you a ticket. You'll be sitting there having some guy write out a ticket, and somebody will blow by your car doing 100 miles an hour. I said, what about them? I didn't catch them. I caught you. I tell my kids, judgment starts at the house. It starts at the house of God. God loves you enough, you'll be the first one to get caught. I said, I love you. I pray over you every morning, every night. Father, teach my children to fear you. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Surround my children with divine favor. May people like them and not even know why. And Father, bring godly friends to my children's life that will strike iron with them, cause them to grow and become what you want them to be. And God has honored that. People say all the time, you have a perfect family? Far from it. I have a great family, but I don't have a perfect family. Why? They didn't have perfect parents. There are no perfect people. The righteous fall seven times a day, and they get back up. We're not the perfect people. We're the getting back up people. So cut some slack and be real patient. I don't know if your kids are 35 and live two states away. When you talk to them, don't judge them. Don't ask them, hey, how you doing? How you doing? Anything I do for you? Anything I pray about? What's going on with you? Don't preach to them. They'll ask you. They'll, hey, Dad, could you pray with them about this? And I, I, I just buried them in those early years. I would pray about everything. Shut up. We're going to pray. Hold on. We're going to pray. I said, no, I'll make you ask. And you have not because you ask not. And if you sit real quiet, they'll eventually say, hey, Dad, you mind praying about this? Love to. And keep your prayers short. The Bible says watch and pray. In my whole life as a father, I've never bowed my heads and prayed. I never. I keep my eyes open. I tell you, we're going to bow your head? No, I never bow my head when I pray. At Thanksgiving, Christmas, or at a deal, or out in public. Can you bless us? We'll bless it in Jesus' name to our body. Amen. Let's eat. I'm not praying for missionaries. I'm praying over the chicken. It's a shorter prayer. So, with this in mind, you'll be a parent when you're 90. You'll be a parent when you're 99. So when you talk to your kids, don't do the judging. That's the devil's job. The devil's the accuser of the brethren. Be a place they can go to come back out of the pit. Tell them the truth. Don't lie about it. But when they come to you, hey, sure, I'll talk to you. What can I do for you? You do that, things go really good. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that sets us free and keeps us free. Lord, right now today, we commit our families, our children, our grandchildren, our stepchildren, our foster children, our entire family, we commit into your hands. Father, we ask you, Lord, we ask you, according to Psalm 3411, teach our family to fear you. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and with that wisdom comes long life, riches, and honor. Father, we thank you that's going to be so. We declare that so over our children, our grandchildren. And Father, make us one together, not just members of the body of Christ. Make us one together as a family. I thank you, Father, that the love of God be shed abroad in our family by the Holy Ghost. Father, we're going to be known as a family of laughter and a family of joy. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. every head bowed, every eye closed. Nobody moved just 60 seconds, one short minute. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Two questions. 
Are you here this morning? He said, Joe, I do not know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've never asked him into my heart, but I think God's been dealing with me, and I'd like to do something about that today. Well, if that's you, I would like to pray a 30-second prayer over you right out of the book of Romans. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to call you forward. Men do not save men. God saves men. But if that's you in just a few seconds, I'm simply going to ask you to raise your hand, wave it down, and put it right back down. If you're willing to acknowledge you need a Savior, God in heaven will save you right where you stand. Old things will pass away. All things will be made new. God will make you a new creature in Christ. It's that simple. Or perhaps you're here today and say, Joe, I'm saved, but I haven't been living for God lately. But I've been stirred this morning. I want to get serious with Jesus. Well, if that's you, you can pray the exact same prayer out of Romans. We're going to pray with these other people, and God in heaven will forgive you every sin you've ever committed. He'll take your sin as far as the east is from the west. He'll put it in the depths of the sea. There'll be no record of your sin in heaven, and God will make the devil pay back seven times whatever he stole from you. It will never get easy than this. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, you say, Joe, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life this morning. Would you pray that prayer for me? Or Joe, I want to rededicate my life. If that's on either count right now, would you simply get your hand up and wave it at me and put it right back down? Joe, pray for me. I want to know my way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your bonus. Thank you there. Anyone else? God does the saving. Yes, they see him back there. God does the forgiving. All he needs is your permission. That's all he needs. Anyone else? Anyone else? All right, right there. One more. Anybody else? All right. Hands down, heads bowed, eyes closed. Here's what we're going to do. Those that have raised your hands, we're going to pray with you, and God's going to do the two greatest miracles he can do. He's going to save souls and forgive sins. So people, let's, let's help them pray. Everybody in here, say this after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I do believe he is your son. He died for me, and you raised him from the dead. I ask him now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me. Forgive me of my sin. I receive you by faith with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Now, Father, for the three hands that went up this morning, whether it was the first time ever or simple reaffirmation of their faith in you, according to your word and their obedience is of right now, they are cleansed, forgiven, blood-bought, born-again children of God. Jesus Christ is their Lord. The devil's not their Lord anymore. They are your sheep. They're their shepherd. They're going to hear your voice and the voice of a stranger they will not follow. As they lead today, Father, surround them with divine favor. May people begin to look at them with a new set of eyes. And Father, bring godly friends into their life that will strike iron and cause them to grow and become all you want them to be. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, give the Lord a hand clap. Praise God. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, check out believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers The Connecting Place on Facebook. The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at Believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast.